welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Welcome back, one and all. This is the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris. I am here with Dr. Joe Boot, and we've got special guest Dr. Aaron Edwards with us today. Aaron is... Uh, the author of several books, uh, A Theology of Preaching and Dialectic. He's co-editor of the T.N.T. Clark Companion to the Theology of Kierkegaard and the author of Taking Kierkegaard Back to Church. Aaron is a self-described theologian in academic exile, and we're going to get to uh, where that phrase comes from in our conversation today. He also blogs at thatgoodfight.com and is co-host of Pod of the Gaps, That's a podcast on the intersection between church and contemporary culture. Aaron, it's uh, it's terrific to have you on the show. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, good to be here. Uh, Love what you guys are doing. Oh, well, we're uh, very much looking forward to to this conversation. So regular listeners will know that uh, we are on a a bit of a summer mini-series on issues facing the church. Today, uh, we've got Aaron on to speak to the theme of Christian cowardice. Uh, We want to look at and analyze uh, where and why the church has failed to speak out uh, prophetically to the culture on key issues, uh, where and the areas where they do speak out, uh, there there's often a, uh, you know, it often takes the form of simply uh, restating uh, or uh, assuming uh, cult- mainstream cultural assumptions, or there is this sort of posture of masochistic navel-gazing uh, where the church uh, will say, or evangelicals have failed to love the culture. And so is it any wonder that uh, they don't want to listen to us? We haven't been winsome or irenic uh, or gentle and lowly enough. So th- these are the two the two uh, approaches that we often see amongst evangelicals uh, when they do speak to culture, Aaron has been uh, advocating for and living out a uh, an alternative, uh, which is uh, uh, what uh, what we'd want to uh, to hear from you about today, Aaron. Uh, a uh, a Christian way to uh, to fight to bring the uh, you know a holy and godly. Uh, attitude of uh, of combati- combativeness uh, to the cultural issues of our day. So I'm going I'm going to turn it over to Joe to get into some of the specific questions, and this is the course that our uh, our conversation, Lord willing, is going to take today. Thanks, Ryan. Um, yes, it's uh, it's good to be uh, uh, with Aaron um, in uh, in the UK. And to have this opportunity to continue our our series, and uh, I think so far, Ryan, uh, we've uh, we've dealt with. Um, I think this is maybe our our third in in That's this right. series as we we deal with the issues. Um, and I think last week we were looking at uh, so called Christian socialism, and yes. um, this this week, uh, Christian cowardice question mark because it's something of an oxymoron. Um, but let's get straight into this uh, discussion while we've got uh, Aaron uh, with us today. Aaron, um, we've uh, I certainly have watched with great interest uh, over the past year, uh, thereabouts, uh, the um, development of 
your ministry and uh, the the issues that uh, you have been and challenges that you have faced as a Christian teacher, as a Christian scholar, um, and and actually I have a um, at least something of a vague connection even to your uh, situation <laughs> because my master's degree was was uh, many years ago was done at the 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 college where you were. Uh, a professor. So just to introduce you to our listeners, can you tell us something of just a little bit about your story um, over the last number of years, your sort of um, uh, Christian journey to being a professor at Cliff College, and then tell us um, what actually happened? What What is it that kind of, to some degree, actually, Aaron, has sort of propelled you to greater visibility within the Christian community in the UK over the past 12 months or so. Um, what actually happened at Cliff College, uh, which makes our discussion today so relevant? Can you start with something of your story and then bring us right up to date with what took place? Sure. Yeah, happy to do that. And just for those, you know, those who are watching the video, I'm so sorry I forgot to wear my my Czech shirt um, because clearly that was the uniform for the uh, for the day. <laughs> Sadly, I didn't, I didn't get the, the winsome memo. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to be on winsome now, um, sticking out like a sore thumb. So, um, um, yeah. So basically, my story. Uh, thank you for those introductions, and, and I think um, it is interesting that you know you, you found I, my first introduction to 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 you, Joe, was. Um, the then princi acting principal of Cliff College, when I first arrived uh, seven years ago, handing me a copy of your book, The Mission of God, which you'd actually uh, given him a kind of sign something which which had some message in it, which said something like, you know, enjoying your, you know, in, in honor of your kind of uh, awkward conversations you guys used to have or the interesting debates, etc. Um, and I think he probably... <laughs> He, he certainly spoke well of you as a person, but it was just, I think, Aaron, I think you'll probably get on better with this than I will. <laughs> he wanted to read it. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll have a look. I had a skim through. I go, God, this is, this is strong stuff uh, for, for a winsome evangelical in, in, the, in Britain. Um, but it was, yeah, so my journey at Cliff started, I guess before I got into academia, I felt God kind of calling me into it, but not certainly with my eyes open all the way. Like I've not really ever had a... a um, a love of academia per se. I'll be very reluctant academic in the sense that I just felt God calling me into it. Of course, I love thinking and reading and writing um, and and doing kind of deep level study. But I, I always saw what the problems were with academia, um, with the way it becomes idolatrous, the way in which in the modern version of the academy, it sucks the life out of people's faith. I often, you know, all my degrees were not done at Bible colleges. They were done at universities. And I remember thinking I would never tell someone to go to university to study the Bible, to go and learn more about God's word. That is not going to happen. I mean, maybe there's uh, other Christian universities in the US and or Canada, maybe or maybe not Canada, actually, um, where um, that kind of thing might be possible. But in the UK, it feels like that, that it all often felt like you're just batting, batting against the stream. That was kind of good for me in some ways. It kind of prepared me for. Um, other debates and battles I would be having further on, but I certainly wasn't ever thinking, ah, oh, this wonderful, glorious academy where we can don these wonderful, weird hats and uh, and gowns and profess over these people um, in, in this wonderful way. I I, I remember seeing you know, doing my PhD at University of Aberdeen, and I, I had some, not all, but some fellow PhD students who who seemed to have a bit of an idolatry of academia, and if they didn't get a job at the end of it. At an institution, they felt like they'd have failed, and I, and I really I wasn't being pious um, when I was saying to them, honestly, if you end up 
working at a coffee shop with a PhD and God wants you to be there and that and that would be some weird thing that God might do to humble you, that would be good. And you can be the weird person who makes coffee for people, evangelizes um, to your colleagues and ha- happens to have a PhD and maybe writes books on the side. That's fine. You don't, you know, you're, you're, you're a Christian, you're following God, you're, you're dead to this world. So if it doesn't actually matter, um, if you ha- if you have to follow a certain course of action. So that's kind of the way I went into it. And I actually felt God stirring me halfway through my PhD to really pursue um, academia. So you'd think that you would pursue academia before you start a PhD, but it took me a while while I was into it to realize, you know, this is where I, I actually want you to carve out a path here so I had to take that a bit a bit seriously when I finished I I did get a job at the university as a temporary teaching fellow for a year which was great fun teaching a a massive class of uh, mostly non-Christians on theological issues um, and and general religious topics Um, and then I I got a a full-time position at Cliff College in 2016 um, which was going to be an interesting kind of culture change because it was an evangelical college uh, of course, Joe had haven't been there presumably about five or six years earlier. I can't remember when you were there, but it was yeah before certainly before my time. Um, and I came in as the program lead of the MA mission, the actual program that you did actually while, when you were at Cliff. And so I, overseeing that for seven years, you know, taking a, you know great interest in the students there and and trying to shape the program in a in a more overtly evangelical direction. I think some sl- kind of sloppy. Um, of sort of the emerging church nonsense had come in for a while. I think Joe had to suffer under some of that in his time. Um, and I tried to make a more robustly evangelical program that was actually culturally engaging and actually just theologically engaging because there were some issues there of, of just general, um, you, some of the university nonsense had kind of been creeping in. And I kind of thought, well, this is, a, I mean, Bible colleges, are sp- evangelical theological colleges are supposed to be different. They're supposed to have something distinctive about them. And so, yes, we do the critical level study, but we don't need to kind of drink the Kool-Aid of um, the kind of cultural downstream um, postmodernism, which was uh, rife and still is in many respects, even though people don't use the word postmodernism. It's 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 done its work. It's had its way in, in the theological academy and still really uh, the fruit of that is still still evident. And so anyway, so I find myself at Cliff working away there, you know, lots of challenges along the way. There's loads of stuff going on that I'm kind of battling behind the scenes. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, things are going well. Um, but I'm clearly um, not, uh, cognizant of the fact that we were linked into British Methodism. Um, and British Methodism is unlike global Methodism um, in that there's, it's pretty much apostate now. And it was that there was, the, it's kind of accepted so much progressive um, false teaching over the years that it became really difficult to break free of that so because the college I was part of Cliff was connected to them and was financially dependent upon them um, that was always going to cause some issues um, but I was challenging some of the ways that the co- you know the college was wanting to respond to Methodism um, and I think falling on deaf ears I think increasingly Methodism's grip upon the college whilst I was there increased significantly very different to when even I first arrived um, and I, as always with some of this institutional rot it kind of has an effect on these sister partner institutions and um, mm. the gangrene, you know, I, I think of Paul t- t- warning against Hymenaeus and Philetus because their doctrine is like gangrene and you need to cut it off, avoid it. And, I, and it's very hard to do that when you're, when you're kind of <laughs> connected into it. So I, I think that was a, a sad thing that happened with the college. It used to have a reputation as a real evangelical bastion, 
you know, in spite of the problems in Methodism, and then it became kind of almost subsumed into it over time. And I could see that happening, but we were fighting against the stream. Uh, me and, and some of the colleagues who are, had similar uh, views to mine, but eventually it feels like that battle may well be lost, sadly. And, and it came to a head um, with this tweet I, I put out in February. I'd already been, I think as Ryan already intimated, I'd already been speaking about recovering Christian militancy for a while. Um, and saying we need to speak out about these things that haven't been spoken out about. We really need to recover that. I've been doing that for a couple of years beforehand, on, out, out there on social media quite a lot, blogs, podcasts, tweets, etc. This one just happened to be one that went viral, basically, and, and people jumped on it. Um, it was, yeah, and the tweet was, homosexuality is invading the church. Evangelicals no longer see the severity of this because they're busy apologising for their apparently barbaric homophobia, whether or not it's true. This is a gospel issue, by the way, because if sin is no longer sin, we no longer need a saviour. So I was wanting to challenge, really, evangelicals who are being too irrenic and, and, and wanting to say, well, I technically agree that this is a problem, that, you know, same-sex blessings in the Church of England or British Methodist Church voting on um, equal marriage, as they call it, um, you know, same-sex marriage is allowed at the same time as a traditional view. You can also have a progressive view, and that was voted on a couple of years ago. All these things happening. And for me, it's really clear that this is the time to speak out. For many evangelicals, it isn't. And they'll say, oh, no, we mustn't. So we'll get on to that, I'm sure, in, in a moment. But that that tweet caused a massive tweet storm. All the progressive, secular LGBT folk jumping on it, but also loads of Methodists, some of whom I knew, some of the leaders with the Methodism who I'd chatted with over time they knew my view I knew their, their view we disagreed but we weren't unfriendly to one another um suddenly the the unfriendliness came out and I think um it all kind of went a bit mad uh, I came back from church after that tweet had gone out on this Sunday it was a, a scheduled tweet so I kind of forgot that it happened really um 25,000 people had been swarming around it going crazy um, the college denounced it publicly saying this is unacceptable inappropriate language it doesn't um, reflect our views or ethos as a college I remember thinking wow, this is interesting. I haven't even been spoken to and I've been already been denounced by my employer um, without wanting a conversation. Um, the next day they, they emailed me. They had actually emailed me on the day. I hadn't checked my work email. They didn't call me. They just denounced me publicly. They thought that was an appropriate way to do it. Um, and then they said, you need to take this down. Basically, we ask at this point you take it down because you violated our social media policy. I said, I don't think I have read the social media policy. It doesn't defame anyone. I wasn't. It wasn't extremist language. I hope you don't think that's extremism. Um, or hate speech um, it's not homophobic it's just denouncing the sin of homosexuality being tolerated in the church it's an, an invasion because it's come from outside it's come from the world the world went rainbow crazy and so then the church goes oh yeah let's do some new exegesis off the back of that i wonder if it's got anything to do with what happened in the world um it's just obvious it's not even to me it's not even slightly controversial what i said um and what they did is they and then suspended me immediately without a conversation. I said, I can't take the tweet down in good conscience. Um, you should know that because you can see what's happened around it. I've been denounced and I've been the victim of hate, if anyone has been here. Um, and I'm not taking it down. Um, but I'd welcome a conversation. So let me know when that conversation is going to happen. I then get someone to a meeting the later in that day by the principal. And I'm read my suspension letter. So it's just not a conversation. He says, literally opens the meeting. This isn't going to be a conversation. I'm going to read your suspension letter and you can ask some questions of, of clarification around the process. And it comes to the end of this was about 4 p.m. The meeting lasted about half four. And um, I had then of half an hour, I've got to 5 p.m. to leave the premises. 
And if I don't, I'll be escorted from my office at 5 p.m. according to procedure and protocol. And I kind of like, I was literally listening to the going, I couldn't believe it because I've seen over years so many, just in, in this very, very kind of liberal world we live in, it's almost hard to discipline. You almost think we need to be more disciplinarian. There's so many things I've thought, this is a real problem. This person's gotten away with that. I can't believe this. I can't believe that within Methodism and other situations. And then suddenly what I've done, immediately they come, they kind of, you know, the bricks come down upon you straight away. You're going to have to leave as though you're kind of harmful to the students. We couldn't possibly have you on site um, influencing anyone because you're such a, a, you know, clearly such a criminal. We've got to get you off site um, by this point. So that, that kind of happened. Um, I then actually tweeted the fact that I've been suspended and then I often share that this is a, a bit like the, um, I didn't have much support for my British uh, evangelicals early on. And then just like the Second World War, the Americans came in um, and uh, and helped <laughs> late, late, but effectively. Um, and so I uh, I tweeted, yes, I've been suspended for this tweet. Uh, by Cliff, by an evangelical college or Cliff College, and suddenly we went from twenty five thousand people to three hundred thousand people, but most of them in support of me and against the college. So I kind of think actually, what happened? The college almost backed the wrong tweet storm, um, and I, I eventually, two weeks later, got fired as as was expected um, for after disciplinary process. Got got fired for um, bringing the college into disrepute. And I think the the just the irony of it was just bizarre. And I mentioned this to the principal at the disciplinary hearing, saying this is you must realise that you've brought the college into greater disrepute than whatever you think I've done. Um, because what you've done, you've told the entirety of evangelicalism that this evangelical expression um, on these issues is not safe. This is not a safe space. So they did say the college is a safe space for diverse views What by in trying to sort of defend uh, the progressives, but not realising that obviously it's a hostile space for somebody who expresses strongly evangelical views. So it probably gets into all the stuff you mentioned earlier there, Joe, around um the kind of irenic place we are in as evangelicalism that it wasn't even imagined that someone could be evangelical have the view and and say it like i said it because we've almost gotten used to not being able to speak like that so i'll i'll probably hand over to you if you want to ask any follow-ups mm. from there but I, i've just talked a long time so i thought I'll, I'll i'll hand over the baton temporarily if you want to jump in on anything you know we appreciate uh, we appreciate the clarity around that i think it was 2010 actually that uh, I uh, finished my um, master's degree uh, with the University of Manchester through Cliff through Cliff College, and mm. even back then, there was this invasion, as you said, of the emergent movement of um, strands of what I would call liberal thinking, and uh, mm. certainly among faculty, I wasn't um, I wasn't the favourite uh, master's student. That, that's true. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I can well imagine. Was some very interesting discussions and debates. But uh, you've, <clears throat> I mean, you've set the a very interesting stall out there because not only have you told us a bit of your own story, but in some respects you've described quite effectively the broader state of evangelicalism within uh, Britain, uh, something that is fairly common now, a fairly consistent pattern throughout much of the West. Certainly, the story would be very, very similar in Canada, and obviously, depending on which state you're in in the United States. But you've actually given us a real insight there into the evangelical movement uh, across uh, Britain, especially in that you were so short of allies and friends. Can you give us a bit of an insight into... What what is the root of this problem? I mean, we 
we're in a situation where supposedly what was, and it certainly trumpeted this when I was there, that this was one of the remaining faithful evangelical institutions uh, in Britain with a, a high quality offering, high quality degrees through one of the best uh, um, universities for theology anyway in the country at the time. Um, mm. And so, you know, a, a reputable institution. And and in a situation like this, you've got a, a, a popular a professor like yourself, well-received by the students, saying something that's basically rudimentary, elementary, evangelical teaching about marriage and human sexuality and stating an undeniable, I mean, an absolutely undeniable fact. Not only actually have we seen the church invaded by homosexuality or homosexualization of the church, we've just had a trans archdeacon appointed for the Church of England in Manchester. I mean, there was nothing controversial about the tweet. It was a statement, quite frankly, no disrespect of the obvious, um, mm. uh, it was a it was a challenging tweet, but you weren't you weren't uh, giving people a prophetic revelation about the, mm. the 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 state of the church, which is why, in some respects, you viewed it as so innocuous. I mean, uh, we we all know that homosexuality as an ideology now is invading the church, and Christians need to be asking themselves some questions about this. That that's the kind of thing that the average American evangelical would think is a falling off a log type of uh, yeah. obvious uh, tweet that is incredibly non-controversial. How did mm. we get, Aaron, to a situation where Christian institutions are so terrified of the culture or of the woke mob within their own institutions mm. that, that, they, that they would rather, uh, in frankly, in cowardice in fear fire mm. their best professors maneuver them out of the college than actually stand with their professor and the basics of orthodox christian teaching well what is the root of this kind of cultural cowardice that in an evangelical institution won't stand with basic evangelical doctrine H how do we account for that in your in your view yeah, no, really, really good yeah, question. And it does, it gets into the um, huge distinction between US and UK evangelicalism. So though, because we're weaker as the church, in every, in, ma in many respects in the UK, um, because we just have, don't have as many people, or the, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to get into kind of differences of strength and weakness in terms of discipleship levels or whatever. Some of those things, some of the fruit of the church is, is not always as visible as we'd like it to be or, or want it to be. Um, I think clearly there's just a lot more going on in the US. And what there isn't in the UK is a strong Christian right. Um, we don't have that. The people on the right tend to be the complete weirdos and they're so fringe and, and, in, and not really doing anything of, of any note whatsoever um, and genuinely might be have actually weird views um, or you have this sort of the, the the right the conservatives are either already quite soft on stuff or those who are still pretty right of center are irenic and don't want to speak about it in the US it's very different and we've already given away so much in the UK 
the, so the evangelical churches and Bible colleges already have, have given up stuff to feminism for years and don't think of it as controversial. So they've already started to set, set something in. And they may still be solid on LGBT stuff. They're really clear on that. But, then, but they've already been softened so, so by these other fears of all these other people who are going to tell them off. Other Christians is often as powerful, more powerful perhaps, even than what the world might say. And so because we've got evangelicalism as a whole, as a big blob, has been shifted to the left, um, that's been a huge problem. And then, of course, that happens in the US as well that, and uh, other other Anglophone contexts. Um, and so it, it is it is an issue everywhere. It's, but it's just something that we don't actually have the numbers and we don't have... Um, we don't have a really strong sense of, of, of how to be reflective, but also really hold the line on these things. Whereas I think over in the UK, it does seem like, yeah, we, we um, reflection is almost seen as um, something that ought to move you to the left, theologically, sociopolitically, in every respect. So if you're reflective, you obviously would go along with this way of doing stuff and this this kind of doctrine or this way of thinking. Otherwise, obviously, you're either stupid or you just don't really love people very much. You don't care about people. Whereas in the in other context, there's a stronger, genuine, reflective and thoughtful uh, version of the right. There's, know, there's unthoughtful versions of the right in North America, of course there is. But that there's a, there's a lot of a, a broader spectrum, strangely, as much as you have those issues of, of the left even worse in some ways, in a more extremist way in the US, you have um, yeah a, a strong response to that as well, which we don't have that. So partly for many years, that's why this is an issue, why the Americans on this, on my tweet were like, what? This is obvious. Um, but many British people were like, ooh, a bit spicy, a little bit too far, wouldn't say that, it's a bit concerning. So you say, Joe, that you know Cliff was a reputable institution, and that perhaps is the whole problem. Um, what we're worried about our reputation, aren't we? And this is this is just something that all Christians as individuals can be concerned about. You know, Jesus tells us to die, to the, you know, to take up our cross, to lose our life that we might save it. Um, Paul Paul says, you know, I'm crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to me. I think many institutions that are Christian are not crucified to the world um, because they are dependent upon their reputation in the eyes of the world. Because that reputation brings them money, it brings them certain kind of fame, it brings them a kind of credence um, amongst the the literati and the elite, and so it, it just becomes one of those things. I, I I wasn't opposed to us having good reputation. I don't think it's you know you shouldn't have a deliberately bad reputation amongst people. You, it should you would hope that any reasonable person would see the things you're doing and go, this is good, this is an honourable good thing to do. We should pursue truth. Most of the ancient universities have some version in their kind of crest of arms of the pursuit of truth that's usually the point of what a university exists for now when in the postmodern world the universities have increasingly become anti-truth post-truth um opening the notion of truth up and even talking about truth as though it's something that is um, almost an ideology as though truth were an ideology um it has this downstream effect and so when you want to be reputable to those people and to those kind of that kind of way of thinking, you're going to end up in really ridiculous places where you're you're, you're going to give more and more, more and more away of, of the of the crown jewels that you, you that you possess, the things that you believe, the things that God has given us to hold on to and defend. Like when Paul speaks of guarding the good deposit we've been given, we just don't do that because the money's at stake, the reputation's at stake, and let's just play this political game. And if we, even though it's dragging us in this direction, maybe if we just hold on a bit longer, that reputation's so helpful. It's so great to have a university degree, uh, a Bible college being validated by a university degree, 
and eventually you just give away more and more and that's kind of where we're at and so that the and the people being trained at these institutions that are already scared and fearful what kind of pastors is that going to produce what kind of missionaries they're going to be equally concerned for their reputation they're not going to say stuff in the pulpit that's going to get them in trouble they're not going to say stuff in interviews they're going to say let me find a way of saying it that's going to take the edge off let me let me just let me do an edit of the bible and let me just say actually the bible writers are a little bit of their time they're a little bit spicy a bit salty I've got a better way of doing it. I've learned winsomeness. I've learned how to put it in a way where the world isn't going to find it a problem anymore. And they're going to just welcome me with open arms because that's what evangelicals are supposed to do. We're going to share the good news. So we want to win people. We want to sell the gospel. We want to sell Jesus to people. And I just think, yeah, in the end, it, it ends up, you, you end up losing huge elements of the, uh, of the huge aspects of the gospel in the process. So on that, uh, this this kind of notion, and we hear it often, that if you are clear, if you're direct, it's as though there's an eleventh commandment now within the you know evangelical community, which is thou shalt not offend anybody, uh, and that somehow that if you are you know if your tone is right, and if you're not shrill, so if you're if you're if you're direct and clear, you're shrill, and you you know oh there's a problem with tone. Um, but if somehow you're you're vague, you're ironic, and I want to get you to comment on that in just a sec, um, mm. then you know you, you can somehow the idea seems to be that somehow you can actually navigate around the offense of the gospel. There seems mm. to be this this bizarre idea that the offense of the gospel isn't the content of the gospel of the kingdom it's just the way you articulate it so if you articulate biblical truth and the, and the gospel of the kingdom in this winsome ironic way then people are going to like you they're going to appreciate you it's going to be winning um if you are on the other hand uh direct and clear and uh, unequivocal which seems to me the way that the apostle paul is and the lord jesus is and the prophets are uh, then, you know, this is different, of course, from being uh, rude uh, mm. and, and, and uh, uh, you know, abrasive. I mean, we don't want to make the, uh, the offense of the gospel the fact that um, I can't use dignified language uh, when I communicate, uh, that, I, that I can't be respectful. I mean, the apostle Peter enjoins the church, you know, with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Yeah. Uh, when we um, uh, share the hope that's in us and when we make our defense. But there's no notion ever in the apostles or in the prophets or in the Lord Jesus of equivocation or of the notion that basically the offense of the gospel is contained in the tone or in the peculiar uh, way in which you might communicate this. And it seems to me that lots of evangelicals are being basically um, hung out to dry on the basis that they're, you know, clear, faithful evangelicals being hung out to dry on the basis that they got their tone wrong. So can you just help us understand what, what does this ironic winsomeness sound like? And why is that not the solution to our cultural problem, Aaron? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that in, a, in a way, for me, what, what happened with, with my situation, I, I would say the more hurtful or or more frustrating kickback I got wasn't from the like crazed rainbow progressives I I get they're actually even being consistent with what they've been told it's it was with the evangelicals who were technically in agreement 
but disagreeing with the tone i i yeah i have to that that would be the most chastening thing for me in terms of like i I loathe that so much because i i just i know that some are deceived and they're not doing it on purpose always i don't want to be uncharitable and say all these people are deliberately being um deceptive and self-seeking or self-serving i think a lot of them are uh, perhaps without realizing i think that that's just there is something there I'm sure there are some who are just sort of swept along and just think, well, I've been told this is the way we're supposed to be. So almost they have this sort of gloss over how they read um, the Gospels, for example. So they don't read the bits where Jesus is totally unwinsome, like embarrassingly unwinsome, let alone Paul. And <clears throat> they may also have swallowed this strange uh, distinction between Jesus and Paul. I hear that so often. You get that progressive in theological arguments anyway. Oh, well, Jesus acted like this. Well, that's interesting because Jesus literally sent the Apostle Paul on his way. And when the mm-hmm. Apostle Paul, one of the things things about Paul's mission is literally going to write all these letters, which are going to say things which are developing what, what it looks like in practice to be a Christian and to be a Christian church. Um, and some of those things are going to batten down hatches that Jesus himself didn't actually clarify because the whole the fullness of the, the counsel of God um, is being revealed in the canon. And I think... This is weird canon within the canon um, sort of dynamics that go on in these debates where people just say, well, you know, when I'm confused about it, I just go to what Jesus did or said only in selective moments as well. And they don't Mm. understand that there's so much in the New Testament that is abrasive. Um, And I don't mean abrasive in this sense. You know, you say, Joe, you're right. We don't want to be thoughtlessly aggressive and thoughtlessly abrasive. Um, It's just that it's not you don't even need to go to jeremiah and ezekiel and and, and you know but because there's plenty there to work with um, but probably someone could always say well that's an old testament capital p prophet so we don't need to imitate those i said well actually yeah we we do um and, and there's no reason why we shouldn't it's not that we just say well that's just a weird narrative event when they when they challenged the culture or they challenged um the kind of rulers and, and chiefs um, priests of israel in the way they did Actually, there's so much of, of Jesus is uh, fulfilling that prophetic ministry and what he did, and then w- what the apostles do. And so, whenever you, whenever I've been defending against other evangelicals, um, this notion of you know, yeah, of, of tone mattering, I've been blogging about this quite a lot this year. I, I did a four-part series called "On Gentleness and Offensiveness," precisely because I'm really hoping to try to communicate um, to some of these even winsome evangelicals that they're actually reading the Bible wrong quite significantly. Um, and they really think, and so many of them think that I'm really stupid or really unkind, an unkind, unreflective person, um, or just spouting my mouth off occasionally. I'm trying to say, literally, really, you have been hoodwinked. You've been hoodwinked by a way of speaking, which is very foreign to quite a lot of Christians over most of history. And I, sometimes I'm, it's understandable because Christianity is not militant in the sense that um, we're like the Vikings and we're just going to go, right, you're against us, we're against you, we're going to kind of combat you. Obviously, many theologians over church history will have to chastise that militancy when it when it is a kind of worldly aggression. And Paul does say, you know, we don't fight, uh, we wage the good warfare, we fight the good fight. We don't wage warfare according to the world's weapons, with the world's weapons on the world's terms. But Paul also says, we demolish arguments and every lofty opinion that sets itself above the knowledge of God. Mm. Um, he, and, and you just think most of the evangelicals are constantly saying, mustn't use that kind of language. I think, well, why not? And when I defend it, they say, but you're not the apostle Paul. I was like, oh, how interesting. 
So we get to be the we get to be like the Apostle Paul in one Corinthians thirteen when he says, "Just love." You know, we we we'll read that out at weddings. We will talk about how love doesn't insist on its own way; therefore, be passive and just let the other person win. When Paul says demolish arguments, oh, that's because he's an apostle. You don't get to speak like that unless you're a capital A apostle. Oh, okay. It's just interesting all these weird rules mm. come out mm-hmm. that, that they didn't tell us about. The apostles ought to have told us uh, what we should and shouldn't be imitating, even though Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And he doesn't, that's again, it, add, add a caveat. And that's yeah. uh, that's strange as well, Aaron, because, uh, you know, if if Jesus is the model rather than Paul, well, we're not Jesus either. We're much less. Than, <laughs> exactly. We're exactly. certainly not the Son yeah. of God. So, so yeah. can we not? Yeah. Can, not can we not yeah. Jesus or yeah. Paul now? <laughs> it gets you literally to a place. It's, you know, if you were conspiratorial, you'd be like, "Is this just their way of gradually unraveling everything in the Bible, so that we don't have to listen to anything?" Because you even think, I think uh, it might be Ryan who mentioned in the introduction the phrase "gentle and lowly." You know that book? Um, That's by one of the Ortlands. Was it yeah. Dane Ortland who wrote it? Or Gar- I can't remember which one. And that was being. Oh, read. I haven't read. I confess, I haven't read it. Um, but I was in a Bible study once where where it was being discussed. So I, I was. I partook in a discussion around it, and obviously, I heard many reviews of it. And I just thought, even if, of course, there's good stuff to reflect upon about Jesus saying, "I'm, you know, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, I'm, I'm gentle and lowly. But not only is that not the only thing he says, and clearly there's a, there's a there's ways of understanding gentleness that we need to be reflected on, where Jesus clearly isn't being gentle and lowly in the way he responds to people who are unrepentant sinners, for example, or false teachers or whatever. But also it was happening in 2020. That was when everyone was reading it. And all of these evangelicals who were already passive, already gentle to the just to the point of being pointlessly saltless and vanilla, are reading this book. Going, oh, so, I so resonate with this. And I was like, really? You resonate with being gentle and lowly because you think this is something you really need to. It's nothing to do with the fact that you're already gentle and lowly and you found a book that's reminding you that this is really important. Now you can hold this up and go, look, it's it's a biblical. There's a, a high, you know high ranking evangelical author is reminding us to be gentle and lowly. Everything I already am in my personality and my church, the way we go about things, that's now baptized um, officially mm-hmm. um, by this um, by this evangelical author. I just thought that is just dubious. Even if everything in that book is true. Um, it's dubious that everyone's loving this book at a time when we're supposed yeah. to be fighting and you don't exactly. they don't get it and mm. they're being they're being taught to not fight and they're being taught that it's foolish and silly to not fight and I just so for me it's been I'm recovering a lot of the uh, need to re- basically reclaim the more militant tone that we've um, yeah. we've kind of airbrushed out of the Bible I think yeah right. yeah I remember uh, just anecdotally uh, that I j- during my my time at uh, a cliff I was asked to give an address um, towards the end and I, and I did and I spoke on a comprehensive faith and it was quite um militant in the right sense uh, you know the the church mm. militant and um uh and I remember a couple of the pre- professors being very disapproving um of even the hymnody that I'd chosen which included Jesus shall reign and the notion of Christ's rule and reign uh just mm. just those hymns uh seem to cause some kind of offense and you're going back 14 14 years um, so that kind of, as you say, that kind of gentle and lowly uh, tone uh, in, in a kind of misunderstood, kind of bizarre, unbiblical gentle and lowly um, mm-hmm. has been a, a problem for a long time in the evangelical community. And Aaron, isn't, isn't it the case also, though, that this couldn't be more counterproductive in terms of the, the growth and the uh, significance of these institutions? I mean, the, the, the Christian institutions that are moving in this direction across the West, 
certainly in the United Kingdom, are emptying. The, 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 the conferences that these institutions have historically put on, I remember the one that, that Cliff would host annually, there wasn't enough people at the last one to, 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 to uh, be able to retain the sandwich truck that showed up to, to serve people. They just drove off uh, because That's there was right. nobody there. Um, and you know, I've got an inside track on that because I have a, I have a family member in the area. Um, so, you know, it is bizarre that the very things that are emptying out and actually threatening the very survival of these organizations in terms of student numbers and recruitment and interest in the conferences, the very things that would actually draw students, which is clarity, uh, fidelity, uh, truthfulness, these are the, 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 we're moving in the opposite direction and the effect, the knock-on effect is the emptying of these institutions. I watched with interest a few weeks ago, um, a, uh, an interview uh, with somebody who I'm not a fan of at all, um, an Andrew Tate. He's a sort of internet phenomena, um, you know, with this kind of, uh, we would say, the kind of militancy that Christians cannot be engaged in, um, but very appealing to young men, especially because there is this air of clarity and um, direction uh, and a willingness to 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 come across in a in a more direct uh, fashion. Well, you're probably aware that he's converted to Islam. And in this interview I was watching, he was being asked about why he'd converted to Islam. And he basically the the, the rub was because uh, I was interested to hear what he was going to say, and I was totally unsurprised by his conversion to Islam. And uh, he. He said uh, two things, really. First of all, that he realized as he was arguing about these things online that uh, he had no real foundation for his uh, views, this idea of absolute truth and so on. He, he, they were floating without a foundation, so he started looking for a foundation. And uh, he commented on the fact that he looked at Christianity in the West, but the problem was uh, the only religion that wanted to fight for anything mm-hmm. was Islam and that Christians didn't want to fight and that they'd given up and that the, all of the, you know, the woke agenda had swept through their institutions and churches and nobody wanted to fight. And it completely put him off Christianity. And of course mm-hmm. he's influencing yeah. millions of, of young men. Now we're not yeah. holding him up as any kind of model, but what was interesting to me about it, because I've actually predicted this for some time is that Islam is going to become more and more appealing to uh, young yeah. men in particular, especially fatherless young men in the culture, because it comes across with a degree of clarity, misguided, but with a degree of clarity, with a degree of militancy, that it's prepared to fight for its values, stand for its profit, and so on. And here we have these Christian institutions, we're supposed to be standing for Christ, his lordship, his kingdom, we're soldiers of Christ, we're his ambassadors, we have all this language, the, the kind of militant language that Paul uses, and, and, and athletic language, we're running the race, we're fighting the good fight. It's, uh, you know, yeah. we, we drop all of that, we have this humble Kevin Bumble, I'm so humble, kind of pietistic retreatism, and our, insti- and our institutions empty. Can you comment on that, on, on the the condition now of these compromised institutions. 
Yeah, exactly right. I, I yeah, echo all those all those um, statements about the loss of a uh, outgoing masculine ethos. I, actually, in my notes for Pioneer Mission, I used to teach on Pioneer Mission amongst many other things I taught at Cliff. Um, and I used to show an old an old um, advert the college used to put up in the 1930s in, in magazines. They would advertise. They'd say Cliff College stands um, for... Uh, as an institution that stands for and impels aggressive evangelism, um, and by which they meant athletically aggressive, as it were, intentional, front-footed, not passive, going out and bringing people the gospel and then challenging those things which which stand up against the gospel. Um, and it had a little part of it that if you want eight enthusiastic men on fire for God to come and visit your town or your circuit, please write to the, the, the principal at Cliff College Carver at once. And so I did use a joke, you know, if you after this, if you guys want to email the principal and say, can I have eight enthusiastic men on fire for God, please? Just send, send and the college would just send these people, these trekkers, they were called. And lots of colleges did this. It wasn't just Cliff. There are many Bible colleges that used to do this, this outgoing form. And, and that shows a confidence in your message. So it's another thing I used to like to say to people, and I, I think I said this last year when I spoke at Cliff at this Cliff Festival with with hardly anyone in the room. Um, it, I was saying, look, how do you think we had a Bible college? Why do we have a Bible college sitting on a big hill in in, in North Derbyshire, um, in Britain, like miles away from Jerusalem? Why do we have churches standing around? It's because some enough people had confidence in their message. Now, what is that confidence? It wasn't the confidence of Islam which is literally the kind that we, we are so com- we're just going to take over and it, and it, and it impel you almost to um to follow everything we 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 we're claiming is true there there is something uniquely different between islam and christianity in that regard there is a gentle lowliness which is different to the message of uh, the prophet muhammad supposedly and so how we bring that is quite significant it, it, it we get confused by this because we then say well you know i need to be gentle and lowly therefore i should not be confident in my message because i need to look like i'm humble therefore i shouldn't really be confident in my faith but that's so stupid i mean it's not even it's just totally nonsensical because because you're really confident in philippians 2 then because you just really believe that jesus made himself nothing took the nature of a servant and we need to just be that so we need to make ourselves nothing all the time and be nothing but that means you have a lot of confidence in that so you are actually extremely 100 percent un humbly confident that you've read this text correctly and that's the thing that yes your modus operandi for life um, and actually it's a misunderstanding just to take one of those things and then allow that to undermine everything else in that very mm. text you won't even have philippians 2 by the end of it so this unraveling of the confidence in our faith takes place at the same time as you say as the growing militancy and lots of other ideologies um islam uh, being one of them in fact i was having a chat with a couple of muslim guys at my local fish and chip shop then if you have those um, across the uh, across the waters, um, but uh, Ryan, but we we have a lot of them here, fish and chip shops, and there were two yeah, Muslim guys there. They, they were make they, they oh you do oh good good, um, so um, yeah, and they were saying you know I was getting into this stuff about woke and saying you know we actually agree I agree with a lot of Muslims in our anti woke stance we could have quite a lot of a strange kinship not really kinship isn't the right word but you you certainly see things on the same side and, and that can be a good bridge building evangelistic conversation. Um, which which the winsome crowd certainly wouldn't like to say. Um, we, we're literally united, united or, or at least we can build a bridge to say, look, we agree on these things that are true. We don't agree on these things, but we agree on these things. And they were saying, we actually totally disrespect Christianity because Christians don't, 
people people say the word Jesus Christ as a swear word all the time, and no, and no Christian says anything about it. Whereas if you we and we just about allow them because obviously Jesus is recognised as a prophet within Islam, and um, so they say we just about allow that because it's in English. If they use the Arabic term for Jesus Christ, we would that they that person would need to run somewhere because we 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 would want to defend it. Now there's something about the kind of guy who would watch Andrew Tate that would be like whoa. I really respect that. You actually believe in stuff, your foundations. And that used to be what Christians believed, even with our good message, which is humble and mm -hmm. and gentle rather than mili militaristically aggressive and violent. Um, we had confidence, complete confidence in that message. And, and so I think the, the, the um, institutions that try to, try to kind of uh, minimize that, it's completely stupid. You're undermining your own foundations. You only need to exist as a church or a Bible college or university because you believe in that message and you want to compel people to come and, and trust you guys um, to be faithful stewards of the truth. Why should they trust you if you don't even believe in what you think and what you're supposed to believe? Um, and so that's not to say we should be arrogant and, and kind of a, a sanctifying sense of you should be arrogant and just pretend that you're right and true and never show any sense of self-correction or self-reflection. That's not what we're saying. But we are absolutely saying that if you don't believe in your own message, don't expect people to give you money and send people there and continue supporting you. You don't deserve to exist anymore as an institution. And so many institutions are so desperate to uh, protect their reputation in the eyes of some, they've, they've realized it's kind of really foolish anyway. They've not really realized the game's changed, for one thing, and that there's a, there's a bit of a shift in culture amongst many movers and shakers who want people to believe stuff, but they've also kind of you know under, undersold their own foundations, really. So undermine them. Yeah. So um, just talk briefly, Aaron, about th this counter notion then uh, that you like to talk about being shamelessly <laughs> biblical. What does it mean as a contrast to this sort of um, Christian cowardice uh, to be shamelessly, shamelessly biblical? Um, and maybe as you're doing that, um, one of the uh, I, I read uh, the last few years, I've had an interesting time actually reading a, a fascinating biography of Kierkegaard and mm. um, benefited from reading a number of his of his works um, over the last couple of years. A very misunderstood character, a very misunderstood figure, very often misinterpreted. Mm. Uh, but um, uh, tell us a bit about being shamelessly biblical and then maybe one or two insights, because I know you're a bit of a Kierkegaard expert. You've written on him a lot. Um, how does actually um, Kierkegaard's engagement with culture give us some, some pointers? Um, because he was not shy about his criticisms of the, the contemporary church in his time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Glad to do that. So, um, yeah, firstly, to the shamelessly biblical um, question, I think that's something that a phrase I've kind of emerged has kind of emerged for me in, in um, recent, probably over the last year, as I've reflected, it's probably a culmination of, of many years of thinking, really, of seeing this winsome crowd um, within evangelicalism who are known for, if, if being evangelical for most people means being very clearly demonstratively under the authority of scripture and having that confidence in the gospel that you're going to go and um, tell people the good news, the euangelion. Um, we, we've developed this sort of weird sense of, oh, well, because we care about the gospel, therefore we're not going to care about all these other issues. They're actually attacking the gospel and we're not, we're not defending the gospel at the point it's being attacked. There's that famous uh, apocryphal Luther quote we could go into about that. Yeah. But um, the, 
it, the shamelessly biblical really refers to um, not being apologetically biblical. Now, I know that apologetics is a discipline where we talk about in terms of defense, the apologia, and we do need to defend the gospel and defend our convictions. That's sli- that's different to what I mean by, I literally really mean saying we're sorry. <laughs> we are sorry. We are apologetic for the Bible. We're sorry that it says this in the textbook, but I, te- I guess I have to believe it. It goes, you know, issues like complementarianism uh, are a clear, clear example because it, it challenges feminism, but arguably complementarianism in how, how we've packaged it over the last, well, so it's a freight, of course, it's a term that only existed, you know, for half a century or so. Um, it's really a kind of apologetic stance against um, evangelical feminism um, and egalitarianism. So we kind of then go, right, I'm so sorry that the Bible seems to be really embarrassingly unfeminist. How can we make it less embarrassing? Um, so I don't think all, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't put all complementarians in that in that boat. But I just think that there's issues within evangelicalism where, where even where we hold the line on something, we're sort of doing it in a textbook way, going, well, it says it in the textbook. So how can we find a way around this problem? How can we like undermine this or that? How can we at least sort of do the very bare minimum of what the Bible seems to be saying uh, rather than treating it as God's wisdom? Which is a very different way of, of the saying, well, he said it in the text. I don't I don't understand. I have no idea why God would um, say this for men and this for women. I mean, don't, I mean, don't ask me. He's God. So I'm happy to submit to God. But it's weird. It's a bit like an Abraham Isaac situation. I don't know why he's told me to do it. I'm just going to do it out of pure obedience. Now, amen to obedience when God gives you something that you don't understand. But there's far more that he's given us to understand and revealed to us in his word. And we're often trying to get around it so that no one could have a go at us and call us liberal um, because we're technically obeying the text and ticking the boxes. But really, we're actually ashamed of it. And there's lots of other texts that we don't even go into that, that make us ashamed of the bible so of course i've mentioned there just an issue on gender you could go into all sorts of other issues where that's the case too so i'm realizing increasingly as the world gets crazier in the west as as the ideologies influence um individuals and societies and then that creeps and invades the church creeps into the church to use the language of, of jude um we need a stronger stance that isn't just I'm so sorry it's here, but here, let me give you a really long winsome apologia for why it might slightly be feasible to believe this crazy sounding thing. We've just got to be like the Christians of old who literally were, no, this is true. You're wrong. This is this is bad for you. Don't do this. Um, it's really important that you don't do this. And it's really important that you understand that Jesus is Lord and he's Lord whether you believe in him or not. He is the Lord. Mm. Uh, and so that has implications about how we speak and how we talk and the kind of institutions we want to build. Um, and so that's a huge part of recovering what it means to be shamelessly biblical, just not apologizing anymore. And it doesn't mean not reflecting and not being compassionate. I, I spend a lot of time writing in a way that I hope tries to persuade. We want to be persuasive, but not apologetic for the, what we mm-hmm. believe to be true. Otherwise, go and believe something else. Go and do something else. There's far more interesting ways to live your life. If you want to play this half-half, you know, fast and loose game and with the, with the Bible, it's not worth doing. Go and do something else with your life. Jesus calls us to obey him and to build our house upon the rock of those who, who hear his words and obey them. So it's about it's about that in, in many senses. So and and Kierkegaard links into that in an interesting way because he was someone who really was a fish out of water in 19th century Denmark. He's dealing with a sort of corrupted Christendom where everyone thinks they're a Christian because culturally it's the affable, cool thing to do. And I do think those who are fighting helpful and good battles, having good conversations around the issue of Christian nationalism, or whatever term you want to use for it, or, or, or Christendom 2.0, etc. That Kierkegaard is an interesting one to look at because he challenges where that can go wrong. Um, 
when it when when people basically it, when it turns into something that it shouldn't be. So absolutely, Christendom 1.0 achieved many wonderful things, um, and we shouldn't be uh, embarrassed by that. That's something that again within this, the discipline I was familiar with teaching within at Cliff missiology, the post Christendom narrative was everything. Um, and you almost weren't allowed to ever say that Christendom was good. It was a terrible thing when Constantine got um, got converted. Right. What, a, what an awful thing to have happened, because then Christianity mm. got power. We mustn't have power, because we're gentle and lowly, don't you know? Um, and they, as they say, from their position of privilege and power, <laughs> which is amazing, usually. Um, so, yeah, the uh, post, so Kierkegaard, though, is a helpful voice in that, in that post-Christendom conversation, because he's saying, look, here's where it can happen. When everyone thinks they're a Christian, it's actually a good chance that no one's a Christian, but or if they're living in their Christianity out um, in relation to what's going on culturally around them, they're almost doing what many of the woke Easters are doing today and just go, okay, right. Is this what we're supposed to believe now? Is this how, what gets you reputable? Okay. I'll be Christian then, or I'll be woke then. Um, so that you had institutions then just basically, yeah, paying lip service to Christianity, but not living it out. So Kierkegaard, one of the reasons he gets misunderstood is he's so focused on the subjective faith that it sounds sometimes as though he doesn't believe in objective truth, which he clearly does in, and dem- demonstrates in loads of ways, because he's absolutely banging that drum of saying, literally, you don't understand the gospel unless it has transformed you personally, and the That's individual right. needs to be transformed so that you're not just joining the crowd. So he's dealing with all these sort of 19th century, think about what's going on in the 19th century and all the ideologies that are impacting um impacting western culture and and finding their way into denmark and and what's come before with biblical scholarship and people undermining the text with their newfound enlightenment ideas uh kierkegaard seeing this creeping in and invading the church and he's seeing pastors who don't really believe uh what they're professing and and they're they're preaching these wonderful sermons you know beautifully written in these massive magnificent cathedrals and, and, and buildings with uh wonderful stained glass windows and there's a huge congregations but no one's really living out the radical uh, message of Christ. And radical, I don't just mean, oh, don't care about anything within culture and society. Kierkegaard was extremely well connected to a lot of the ideas and, and things going on in his society. But radical in the sense of that that discipleship where you've really given yourself over um, to Christ. In every, and, you're, and you're prepared to be called a fool and prepared to be to look stupid and, and non-affable if, if that should be what society calls you. So Kierkegaard paid the price of that and was often seen as a bit of a weird extremist in his time, a fanatic perhaps, but um, maybe not fanatic isn't the right word because he because he still would have been seen as like a challenging figure because he was a known intellectual. So I don't know if he'd be quite seen almost like a Wesley would have been seen. Mm-hmm. as just kind of, oh gosh, you're just too religious. Um, I think Kierkegaard, what he wrote certainly sounded very fanatical to some. Uh, and he, he spoke of the martyrdom of misunderstanding um, and the way that he's trying to communicate with a mixture of indirect communication and direct communication. So saying, actually, some of you, actually, I can't even tell you the truth straight up in the way that Jesus sometimes does with parables. So you might write a whole book uh, under a pseudonym with a view that isn't quite his view, but has elements of his view sort of fused within it to make a point so that so, so someone, one of these sort of effective secular people who's pretending to be Christian may read it and, and be challenged in some way. Then he might write a direct book of sermons the same day and publish it in, under his own name. And then and so, so he's a weird communicative strategy, a fascinating character. But um, the main, I, th- I would argue his main thing, it's what I argue in my book, the uh, Taking Kierkegaard Back to Church book that Ryan mentioned earlier. And um, the subtitle of that book is The Ecclesial Implications of the Gospel. So there are implications in our life and for the church um, of saying that you believe Jesus is Lord. You don't just get to say it and then carry on living this life that's entirely worldly. 
And so that kind of uh, refined worldliness that was very rife within within Europe at that time, mm. especially within a, a nice place like Copenhagen, where Kierkegaard applied his trade as a writer. Um, his dates are 1813 to 1855, so that kind of first half of the 19th century. Um, one of the famous parables, I'll, I'll close with this really, would, would be that he tells. He told a lot of parables, Kierkegaard. Um, and one of my favourites is, which I bring out in the book, is um, waddling geese in the pulpit. <clears throat> well, that's what I've called it. I think it's called the tame geese is the phrase he uses for it. And it's basically that there's this, he tells a story of a, a church. He says, imagine a congregation of geese. And imagine they're in a church and there's just all these geese. And there's this gander who climbs the pulpit every week, uh, the spiral pulpit up to that wonderful elevated height. And he, and he preaches this grand, eloquent sermon of how these geese are wasting their lives because they, they ought to be um, flying and making use of their wings. God has given them these wings that they may fly off to distant lands and adventure um, and and discover new things and, and appreciate his beauty and, and creation and, and the, the wide expanse of everything. Um, and then all of these these geese applaud this sermon. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Gander. And the Gander gets down from the pulpit and they all waddle on home again. And they come back next week again in the same process. They go and listen to this sermon about the use of their wings and they applaud this sermon and then they waddle on home. And then one one time some uh, someone comes along from outside the church and comes in and goes, hang on, like, aren't we supposed to be using our wings? Isn't that what we're talking about? And they're like, oh, goodness, we don't want to actually do that. We don't, we don't actually use our wings i mean that's kind of that would be crazy look at the people who who use their wings look what happens to them look that person got completely ostracized when they use their wings look at that person that, that they're really skinny they don't get any food anymore look at the people who who actually are, are of the grace of god in living in the grace of god is the people who are plump they're well fed look at the look at the church the people in the church are very well fed they look like they're they're prosperous but look at that person out there skinny probably this person died, that geese died, that goose died, etc. So the way to do it, really, if you didn't want to get ahead, you need to do what we're doing within the church. That's why Kierkegaard was so aggressively against the church. And he you know, produced a, a series of aggressive attacks, polemics on them. So not irenics, mm. polemics mm. Um, against the church called known as the attack upon Christendom, where he's almost saying the only way to be a Christian is to get out of the church because the church has become um, a kind of building where there's a hospital full of poison and the, the patients are going in and they're getting worse. They're actually getting worse by being inside the building. So what we need is something that's a purer form of Christianity. Now you can critique Kierkegaard by the fact that he didn't go probably far enough to build a positive um, alternative, but he did say, I think he said enough for us to be able to go on. But for me, the, the key is his deconstructive attack upon false Christianity is a really helpful one for us to hear today, I would mm -hmm. say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I particularly uh, appreciated his attack on the, the philosophical fad of Hegelianism in the church. And it does seem mm. to me that, um, mm. you know, it, yes, different time, different era. But again, we pick up the popular fad, the fad, the philosophical fad today is critical theory, basically mm. um, critical theories. And these are being baptized as Christian in various ways. Uh, we've got the uh, the Church of England, the Church of England schools, just reading about this this week. Um, insisting on teaching uh, critical race theory and all of these things. And this is seen as holiness, piety. Mm. And um, we've got to have people who have a, a willing to uh, to critique and take on these uh, philosophical pseudo-biblical fads that are actually mm. counter-scriptural and actually are like that poison, people going week after week after week and uh, to, to, to these churches where they're just taking on poison. 
Let's close with this question, Aaron, and, and, and wrap it up with this before I hand back to, to, to Ryan to close us out. But um, just, 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 in a, just in a minute or two, um, we are in a situation now where the, many of these institutions, the Christian institutions, are, are, have been taken over um, by, uh, if not the Wokerati uh, the, and the Jiggery Wokery, they've been, they've been taken over by this kind of weak, retreatist irenicism. And it's very difficult to, for people like you, um, people like me, uh, to find a place or approval within those kinds of institutions. Uh, they don't want to hear from us. They don't want to engage with us for the most part. Um, they don't really even want the debate with us. So have mm -hmm. we reached a point where are we, is the priority trying to recover these failing and fading institutions, or is this a moment in our cultural history as believers to be starting new and rebuilding new institutions, creating new opportunities uh, to get past these gatekeepers uh, who, who um, frankly, are keeping the faithful out uh, very often. Um, and uh, do we let these these uh, these institutions die off um, and create new ones? What what's the priority? There may be a bit of a both and there. I accept that, but is there a peculiar priority now for for Christians? Yeah, it's, it, this is a huge question for our time, um, for those who get it and who understand the cultural moment we're in, this need to return to scripture. I, I think we're in some we're in some kind of reformational moment. We, we might not need to put a capital R on that, um, but uh, I think we need to see a shaking up of things. We need to see a return to scripture, a return to that which really... Um, that the authority which is which is birthed us and under which, uh, on which we stand, and there are many people who technically agree that you, the hard, the really challenging thing we have is when you say institutions. You know, I've had people critique me and some of the stuff that I've said because it sounds like I don't think there's any anyone doing good. Well, of course, I think there's people doing good. There's a, always a spectrum of people who are doing good stuff or a, a good stuff and some helpful stuff and less helpful stuff. Sometimes even the people doing good stuff don't realize they're still part of the problem um, and that they're not really, it's not going to help longer term. We can never really envisage what the future is going to be, yeah, however prophetic we wish to, uh, to be. But I'm pretty sure that nobody guessed the, the state that we would be in right now right you know even five years ago i don't think people would see right this situation where we're the kind of voices that are being elevated um and and the people who have now got platforms that didn't previously um the kind of ideas that are now being spoken about we might think of someone like a jordan peterson coming along or something influencing people on on, on the center right for example um that wasn't thinkable in people's imagination so there is a shift um, occurring and we i think christians we do need to err on the side of founding new institutions rather than um, mm -hmm. trying to reform old ones because I know from experience having worked in one and worked very closely um, with the the university that the University of Manchester that validated us at Cliff and working within the University of Aberdeen briefly um, and, and basically knowing lots of people within the, um, the theological and, and ecclesial world um, I think 
I can see that these this think this is a pattern, a pattern problem really. And and, and so though I'm, I'd be glad for reformation to happen within those institutions, and we could see a great change. And if there are any institutions out there who think actually yes, we do need to change, that's great. I'm not going to be no. We've got to start from scratch, blow it all up, and start uh, from um, you know ground zero. Absolutely not. If if there are repentant, uh, willing uh, uh, ships that are willing to make a, a change of course, then go for it. And that's great. And praise God if they do. And we can pray that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we need revolution for the sake of it. But I do think we need some some reforming needs to occur. So if they're going to change course, they need to change course pretty quickly. And they need to realize that this is a significant issue. I'm not being alarmist, trying to create a false narrative of it's really bad. I, it, all of those institutions have shifted to the left in the last mm-hmm. 50 years and they don't even realize it's happened that's this that classic problem of um, the kind of incrementalism it's happened in all the denominations and, and most of the bible colleges as well so you better have a very good reason for why you don't think you're going to go the same direction and you better put some policies people um, doctrinal statements in place and, and live by them not just speak put them on your website that are really going to show that you're going to not do that so otherwise i do think a, a, a an important exciting venture of our time will be right let's gather people who really do get it and they were going to be small and, and look like a kind of vag- a bunch of vagabond bohemians for a while actually in the long term i think people are probably going to look at the people who are shamelessly biblical rather than those who are apologetically biblical and half believe mm-hmm. or half say everything that they really believe because longer term i think um, god is going to honor those institutions which are going to be more faithful overtly explicitly to him and willing to face pay the cost, pay the price of what it means to follow him, follow his words and live them out faithfully yeah. in this world. Yes, I think it will be the, uh, the the careful, the ironic careful who uh, will end up writing the histories of the courageous um, in, in our time. So Ryan, thank you ever so much, Aaron. Ryan, over to you. Yeah, Aaron, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks again. You're really speaking our language with this uh, approach of shamelessly biblical it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you on uh, on our platform. We promise to uh, to put this up unedited and un uh, uncancelled, and uh, re- really uh, really appreciate uh, the uh, your your faithfulness and the uh, the approach that to, that you've been been advocating here today for a uh, a recovery of a, a martial spirit of Christianity. So we're uh, grateful for uh, your your time here. Looking forward to uh, to having you with us for the conference in November at uh, the Mission of God in the UK. Mm. Aaron Edwards, again, blogs at uh, That Good Fight, and we'll put a link in the description. Appreciate your time, brother. From all of us here at the Ezra Institute, we remind you that from him and through him and to him are all things. May God be glorified. We'll look forward to being with you again next week. Mm.